This is episode 38 of the Movie Bite Podcast, a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, and more. Today is Wednesday, April 3rd, 2013. I'm your host, Joe Darnell, and I'm joined today by my friend of the show, Clark Douglas. Clark, good evening. How are you? I'm well, Joseph. And yourself? Ah, pretty happy. I'm glad to be back. Uh, It feels like it's been such a whirlwind of a week. Uh, So much is going on. Holidays, birthdays, and other things. It's crazy. And, uh, you know, two particularly unique holidays out of the year for spring, back to back. It just didn't seem right, right? Easter Sunday uh, followed up by April Fool's Day. So Easter Sunday turned out to be April Fool's Eve. I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't read too much. Into it. <laughs> so, what, what what did you do on April Fools? Uh, worked mostly, uh, like the fool that I am. <laughs> there you go. Well, me and you both. Um, and yeah, I think that does anybody take April Fool's Day off from work? Um, I I would hope wise maybe, people, baby. Hmm. That, that's a good question. You know, the the first thing that comes to mind is something like court jesters, but then no, they would be working that day. So, <laughs> right. Well, um, my friends listening to tonight's show, you'll notice that TJ is not with me and Clark, and there is a re- good, very good reason for this. TJ couldn't be on the show tonight, as it turns out, his mother Charlotte Draper passed away this past Sunday at the age of fifty-six, and uh, the cause of her death was a heart attack, and it was unexpected. She had no special health problems, and um, tonight his family is together for services. If you want to know more, TJ wrote something about his mother on his personal site, and in the show notes for this episode, there will be a link to where he wrote about his mother and what his family is going through. Uh, Our prayers go out to TJ and all the Drapers, and I I sure hope that TJ will be back with us next week when we talk about some more movie stuff. And Clark, we're really glad that we could have you on the show tonight. It's been a while, probably what November maybe since the last time that I heard your voice. Uh, that sounds more or less right. <laughs> and uh, since you just mentioned that, I do want to say uh, here at the beginning, I want to wish TJ and his family the very best. I can't imagine what a difficult time this must be for them. Yes, um, I, it was very moving. Just when I read his post, I yeah. never met his mother. I don't know any of his other family members besides his son I've met personally. But when I read his piece, I, I really felt for them. My mother is about the same age. Your mother's about the same age, right? Uh, yeah. Somewhere around there. And yeah, just, I know how I would feel. So when he told me, I, I couldn't believe it. So, and well, anyway, um, TJ, we miss you. Uh, we're praying for you and your family. Indeed. Now, Clark, um, just as a reminder for all of our friends listening, Clark Douglas, if you haven't heard him before on our show, he is the station manager for WHIE in Griffin, Georgia, and I consider him to be an adept movie critic. He's been writing about movies for long, much longer than I have and talking about movies on his radio programs, and uh, one of his uh, special interests and hobbies is the large world of movie soundtracks and you could ask Clark anything about movie soundtracks and he knows the answer about it just about um he he's got like a phonographic memory <laughs> so um 
Clark I, is the I, man. I could certainly provide an answer on anything. Now, whether it's correct uh, would be another question. But I would trust you. So, well, I appreciate your trust. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> misguided as this, <laughs> sure. Now, Clark, but of late, you've been spending less time, you know, around the movie cinema, and more, or more or less, you're participating in some acting yourself. What are you working on now? You're sort of in between, in between some plays. Yeah, um, I, I've just been dabbling in some stuff on a local level. I've been uh, doing some stage plays, and so that has kept me from getting to the movies as often as I'd like, especially uh, the past couple of months. Things have just been so busy. But uh, well, You're I not just, missing too much right now. It's pretty slow in the theater. It, it is the doldrums <laughs> out there right now, so um, thankfully I, I don't feel I've missed too many crucial things, but I just finished working on a play called Cotton Patch Gospel which is uh, actually a retelling of the life of Christ, but imagining that he were born in the present day in Gainesville, Georgia, hmm. and uh, offers sort of a southern spin on the greatest story ever told, and uh, an interesting a musical take on that. And then I'm about to start working on a show called The Hallelujah Girls, which is a comedy uh, about a group of southern women who run a spa out of a church. So hmm. not for any particular reason, both of the shows I'm working on have both southern and religious themes. But uh, that's just what I've been doing at the moment. Huh. You know, what I really appreciate about the theater is that, well, I mean, like the play acting thespian theater is that so much of the material there is original because they're not concerned with making the big bucks. You're doing things that are far more artistic, a lot more creative oftentimes, and it's just more uh, down-to-earth and it seems a bit more human. And I, I commend you for getting involved. I hear that you were a really good singing Frankenstein. <laughs> that That's still one of my favorite shows that I've done. Yes, I got to play Frankenstein's monster. Um in a production of that at the Henry Players in McDonough and really enjoyed that one. Um, Could I ever convince you to, like, you know, give us a soliloquy at one of our gatherings <laughs> with all of our friends? That That's – I'll think about that. <laughs> Frankenstein uh, solo. <laughs> we'll well, we, see. We've we got some items of inf- interest here. Uh, movie news and stuff that we've highlighted at moviebyte.com. You can get the links there in our show notes for this episode for these stories. And I thought that that we would run through these real quick before we get to the main topic of our show, where we discuss the present and future of Disney Studio and uh, Pixar Animation Studios. Clark and I are big fans of Pixar and Disney films, I guess, for the most of our lives. We've dissected them (laughs) and uh, been entertained by them very closely. So I wanted to talk extensively about that tonight because we just so rarely get to talk about the overarching development of movies and we're focusing so much on one particular movie but tonight we have a rare exception to that Uh, first off here though we wanted to highlight some things so first i wanted to mention the story that christoph waltz will be starring with amy adams in a movie directed by tim burton called big eyes and if you don't know who christoph waltz is i'm so sorry for you because he is one of the more interesting character actors that I've discovered in recent years. I love him in every performance that I have seen. Clark, can you say otherwise? No, uh, Christoph Waltz is a magnificent actor, and both of his Oscars are well-deserved. Well, good. I'm glad you feel that way. Um, coming from a movie critic, I feel like I'm validated now. <laughs> 
So, um, a, a little bit more about this particular movie called Big Eyes. I this is a fairly original screenplay. Waltz, who's coming off another Oscar turn in Django Unchained, and Amy Adams. This is, by the way, this is from Deadline. This is what they reported. They had the scoop. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Christoph Waltz and Amy Adams nominated for The Master, which came out in 2012, will play Margaret and Walter Keane, whose paintings of large-eyed children became one of the first mass-marketed art sensations in the 50s and 60s. Those prints sold in gas stations and every five-and-dime store across the country. While Walter was the marketing genius, he also took the bows for doing the brushwork. And he was a full-fledged celebrity, a regular on TV talk show circuits. His uh, shy wife was the actual artist, though, in the family. And when they split, she tried to get her dues. And uh, he uh, painted her, though, as being eccentric. And they ended up in court. There, a judge finally provided them with two easels and ordered them to prove it. Walter's art reputation went down the tubes, or the canvas, I mean, when he begged her uh, off uh, the case of having to paint anything that day because he claimed that he had pain in his arm. And uh, meanwhile, Margaret Keene whipped up one of her trademark big-eyed works. Uh, doughy-eyed paintings, they are at that. I saw them on the internet, and I wasn't familiar with her work, but now I'm very curious. And it just sounds like an awesome opportunity because Tim Burton, I like some of his style some of the time, but I feel like he is too concentrated in most of his films. Here we have a somewhat historical film story premise. I don't know what genre they want to put it in yet, but with great character actors like Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz, uh, call me interested. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in this one too. Uh, One of the things that intrigued me most was I saw it was being written by the people who wrote the movie Ed Wood, which Burton directed, which was another uh, very intriguing portrait of an eccentric artist. And if it's something more along those lines, it might be a nice change of pace for him. Hmm. You know what I really just appreciate about this is that, you know, for the thing I, I've already noted that I feel like Tim Burton can be too concentrated of himself and his own movies. Right. But I appreciate just how creative most of his films are. They bring something to the cinema that's hard to come by by so many other directors. And uh, it's refreshing at the same time. uh, I want it in small doses, but maybe with this story being based off of a historical situation and uh, including Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz, it just, it just sounds like a good opportunity. I I really hope so because I I haven't seen Frankenweenie yet, so I can't really say anything about that one, but uh, his other recent films, Alice in Wonderland and Dark Shadows, both more or less felt like Tim Burton on autopilot to me. So uh, I'd like to see him get some material that inspires him again. Mm. Do we have uh, any word on whether or not this is going to be a live action story? I hope it is. Oh, yeah, uh, it it is. Okay. So it's not another one of his clay animations. No, no. Uh, Although I'm sure he has another one of those being cooked up right now as often as he turns them out. (laughs) Sure. He probably has a long queue of them, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Clark, you want to follow up with our next story, please? Sure, and this is an intriguing story. China is getting its own version of Iron Man 3. Uh, to provide some background on this, the co-production status would have treated Iron Man 3 as a domestically produced film and enabled Disney and Marvel to circumvent the government's import quota, 
limiting the number of foreign releases that are shown in mainland theaters. That would also have given Disney a larger piece of the box office. But the Mouse House is still getting preferential treatment by producing a version of Iron Man 3 specifically for Chinese moviegoers that features notable locations and a fair amount of footage that would appeal to local taste. Studios have been careful to meet a long list of Chinese censorship rules when unspooling their picks there. Last year, the James Bond film Skyfall had to cut a scene of a Chinese security guard being killed by an assassin when the government objected to law enforcement being portrayed as incompetent. References to the film's villain being tortured by Chinese authorities were also removed. Other films like Men in Black 3, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, and Mission Impossible 3 were also edited. You know, um, if American, uh, the American government were to nix Hollywood films on the same basis, I don't think we would have a, a, a whole genres would vanish for those that demonstrate incompetent government, you know, people. <laughs> well, China, China has very restrictive film rules. They only allow uh, a limited number of movies to be imported from America each year, as we mentioned. And, uh, Iron Man 3, a particularly interesting case since there's been a bit of controversy over the fact that uh, an English actor is playing a Chinese character, Ben Kingsley playing the Mandarin in this movie. Uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe they'll cut out all of his scenes and uh, like a, you know, digital head double feature or something. <laughs> but one of the other interesting things that I did hear is that they're going to add some scenes in this movie uh, featuring some popular Chinese actors who will not be featured in the traditional version, um, which is an intriguing approach. I, I don't really know that I'm a fan of the idea of delivering different cuts of movies to different countries uh, for the sake of appeasing each one. But, you know, we'll see if it works. I'm sure it will be profitable on a financial level. Right. And, well, uh, that's... Part of the problem here is that Hollywood is trying to make this all the more profitable in China, which is yeah. essentially the second largest box office, you know, grossing, you know, place. Uh, and I mean, it goes both ways. I wouldn't want uh, a foreign film. I wouldn't want something like Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. I wouldn't want that to say feature some scenes with Tom Hanks to, you know, <laughs> appeal to me a bit more. But uh, that, that's essentially what they're doing here. Yeah. It's it's definitely unusual. I'm very curious to see how this turns out and what I expect there to be more political commentary about this in the months to come. Yeah. You know, just the very um you know, great number of the themes in Marvel films relating to Tony Stark are political themes. They're they have to do with American patriotism and it seems to me that we're somewhat bowing the knee to another country that we don't altogether agree with on politics with this uh, twist of the film franchise. I just don't know what to make of it yet. I got to see what they're doing with the material to know what this actually represents. Does this change the themes or is this just a different take on the themes so that they can make them more palatable to the Chinese? Um, I'd be very well, curious to see the Chinese cut on a Blu-ray or something. When it comes yeah, out I for would Americans. Too. And, uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the whole Red Dawn situation 
uh, not too long ago when they made right. the remake of that film and the, the villains were originally Chinese and then the people who made the movie remembered, oh right, there's a lot of people in China who will spend a lot of money to see this movie, so let's make them North Korean where they're not mm. going to show it anyway. And uh, rather than being an artistic decision, it was purely a profit-driven one. And, you know, regardless of politics, which I don't really care about one way or the other there, I think you should do what's right for your movie rather than what's right for your pocketbook. But then this again, being Hollywood, that's not going to happen. Right. Well, hopefully, with you know, I think that there are honest people in Hollywood. I think that they're going to do... If, sure. if their hands are tied behind their back, I think that they will still try to do their best to do something in the right light. Um, I don't know that they always succeed, but you know, if um, the higher ups sometimes give them the, you know, the less than ideal situation, then I think they try to turn it around and make good with it. So hopefully that's what's going to happen with this Marvel film. And hopefully uh, this doesn't, turn into a fiasco for Marvel studio films in general. They have so many coming out. I just hate to see this, un, you know, un, unravel like it could. No. Yeah. And, and I don't think it will, especially since the movie that we're going to be getting is essentially the movie that we would have gotten regardless of whether or not any of this had come up. It's the Chinese market that will be treated to something different. But uh, whether that inspires a trend of studios doing that in other cases with other countries or whether this is just a special case remains to be seen. Now, it's true, uh, on the one hand, that in small ways, the screenplay is often altered when a foreign film comes to America or vice versa to make it uh, work better for the different culture audiences. You know, uh, that's that's at least true in animated films. Yeah, I know that they do voice work. Um Specifically, changing bits of dialogue to uh, yes, especially with the animated ones, right? Yeah, with the the more traditional foreign language films, that doesn't happen as often. But Hmm. yeah, it does happen. So very, it'll be fun to follow the developments. Mm -hmm. Next, we have here the story that Warner has an archive of instant classic movies you can now watch online. Warner Archive Instant launches, offering streaming for classic movies and shows. After launching in beta a couple of months back, Warner Archive Instant is finally available for the general public as of this week. The service costs $9.99 per month, which gets you unlimited streaming of their catalog from Warner Brothers, MGM, RKO, Allied Artists, and more. Currently, there are around 122 titles available, some in HD with new selections expected to be added on a regular basis. Subscribers can watch the films on their PCs or Macs by installing Microsoft Silverlight, which I think you also need for Netflix to watch um, Netflix on your computers and browsers. But the only way to stream them to your television is via a Roku set-top box. Roku is the only way to watch any of these movies in 720p or 1080p. Warner Archive Instant cannot be accessed via mobile devices at this time. So this is pretty cool to me because I I was raised on classic movies, and it's probably the reason why I appreciate filmmaking in general and its future, because I, I've been so immersed in the entire history of Hollywood and what they're about and what they're doing. And I love it that classic movies can live on for a, this new generation I think that 
this is probably a good move, but it's a small move, and I'll be interested to see where it goes. Warner Brothers doesn't even have a instant play collect database necessarily for their other more modern films, right? At this time, I don't believe they do, apart from sharing their movies on Hulu or Netflix, do they? Yeah, no, that's that's pretty much all, all the options you have is finding their stuff through other services. Now, the Warner Archive, right. just to give so a little bit of background on this, television. Yeah, uh, the Warner Archive started as a line of DVDs, which is still going, and uh, they're essentially DVDs which are manufactured on demand of older, more obscure movies that Warner Brothers doesn't really think would merit uh, a proper traditional release because not enough people would buy it. But in this case, basically, you request an obscure older title, and then they burn a DVD for you specifically and send it out to you. And it's pretty simple. It doesn't come with any bonus features or anything, but you get to own something that probably wouldn't have been made available otherwise. And this is essentially a digitized version of that. Uh, right now, I'm going to say it's not the best deal in the world paying 10 bucks a month for you know, 120 something movies, uh, no, given how that contrasts with something like Netflix, where, you know, you have thousands of older films, not to mention all the other stuff that's on there. But, um, I- I'd be curious to see where it goes and might be worth, you know, checking back in with later on down the road to see if they've grown what they're offering at that point. They're, right now, yeah. though, I think you'd have to be a pretty, a pretty diehard fan of classic obscure Warner Brothers flicks to, pay that for this right because i mean after all like you're saying this is a very limited collection and they're offering it at a comparable price to the netflix option and altogether netflix has a lot more classic movies to show for on their instant play so uh, i think you just save your money wait and see where this goes i'm glad to see that they're making this move and it makes sense that they would start with something like a very small archive of the classic movies Because hopefully what we'll have in uh, times to come will be the option to get movies directly from their sources from the studios on their websites and be able to access a very large movie archive um, that's not so limited. And I'm just glad to see that Warner is going in this direction. It seems like all the studios in general are very hesitant about making streaming options with their movies in general. So Netflix has got it going, Hulu, you know, but that's about it. You know, there's been a few others, but Amazon they're not great options. Right yeah. Uh, the one that excites me right now is uh, HBO is talking about reconsidering offering HBO Go as an individual service as opposed to something you only get with a cable subscription, uh, which would essentially for a monthly fee give you access to all of their programs and some movies that they show and stuff like that, which – would be an interesting move uh, that might change cable television in a pretty significant way. Right. As far as the consumer is in, in me is concerned, that is the way to go. I, I really hope that they can pull that off. I want to see that. I mean, um, I sure hope that the studios can somehow mirror the success of iTunes and, and make it work for them. And I'm not altogether frustrated with iTunes. I have no reason to... Uh, use other services per se like you pointed out amazon does a fine job as well but oftentimes the studios you know cause stifling situations for consumers that don't seem necessary yeah well it seems like uh it's it's sort of 
there, there's a bit of a sea change taking place in this regard, and you're seeing with the success of Netflix and Hulu and some of these other companies, I think studios are really starting to reconsider this. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if the landscape has changed dramatically in terms of how things are distributed in the next 10 years or so. Hmm. Good times to be living in. Indeed. <laughs> well, Clark, go ahead with the next one. Uh, sadly, British actor Richard Griffiths has passed away at the age of 65. We learned that Richard Griffiths, best known for his roles in Harry Potter and the History Boys, has passed away. Harry Potter fans will probably remember the seasoned actor best as Uncle Vernon in the Harry Potter movies. Richard Griffiths was able to bring the nasty character to life in such a believable way that it was a shock to turn and watch him in the History Boys, where he played the flawed but beloved teacher Hector, or as the shambolic Uncle Monty in the critically acclaimed and wonderful film With Nail and I. One of his most memorable and gripping performances, the History Boys won him a number of awards, including the Laurence Olivier Award for Best Actor and the Tony Award for Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Play. Uh, certainly... Rest in peace, Richard Griffiths, a wonderful actor, and always a pleasure to see him turn up in the many films he appeared in over the course of his career. Very nice. Yes. Um, he will be missed. Yes. I, w- I wish that more British actors were put to good use in, in Hollywood films, and he seemed to be one of the few that really were excelling in his um, supporting roles. And he was uh, yet another British actor that uh, had a theater background. He started with the Royal Shakespeare Company, back in his early years, and uh, he actually, uh, a a small tribute to Richard Griffiths here, uh, he participated in pretty much the only scene that I liked in the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean film, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, where he played (laughs) King George. A spectacularly (laughs) funny and strange scene, and I loved it. It is. uh, Nothing else in that movie really worked for him. (laughs) Yeah, you, you had to bring that scene up. <laughs> <laughs> he was fantastic in that. Uh, I, I'll agree. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the Pirates films, but he did a fine performance. A lot better than several of the other uh, British actors in general for that partic- the particular franchise. But yes, he, he was great. And all the more power to him and what he could do for the Harry Potter series as well. Well, and, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, I also liked him a few years ago in a movie called Venus with Peter O'Toole. He played Peter O'Toole's best friend and uh, oh. a very nice supporting turn there. Huh, okay. I'll have to look that one up. You'll have to give that one again to me at the end so I can add it to the show notes. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so uh, next story we have, Ellen DeGeneres. This is pretty big news, people. Ellen DeGeneres announced... Finding Dory, and this is really what led to our main topic of discussion for today, today's episode. Here it goes. While specific plot details are TBA, the title suggests Finding Dory will find Nemo, Marlin, and the gang on the hunt for Nemo's best friend and very amnesic, fr- uh, fishy friend at that. Unsurprisingly, DeGeneres, who won over her audiences with her uh, her initial turn in Finding Nemo, is rather happy to be back on this uh, particular franchise. She said, I have waited for this day for a long, 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 long time. And uh, I'm I'm not mad it took so long. I know the people at Pixar were busy creating Toy Story 16. But the time but the but the time that it took is worth it. And the script is fantastic. And it has everything I loved about the first one. It's got a lot of heart. It's really funny. 
And the best part is, it's got a lot more Dory. You know what? Uh, huh, where to begin? <laughs> let me finish. Let me finish what I wanted to add here from the original article. Uh, John Carter director and, and Pixar veteran Andrew Stanton is taking the helm, and is just as excited as DeGeneres. And that's very important for this film because Andrew Stanton was the director behind Finding Nemo, and one of the reasons why I think that film was so extraordinary for its time. Uh, Clark, what is your first impression of this breaking news? Uh, I'm excited about it. I think it it will be exciting to see Andrew Stanton returning to the realm of animation. I think it could be argued that Finding Nemo and Wally, his two Pixar contributions, are uh, among the very finest stuff the studio has put out. And uh, certainly, as long as is he's in charge again, I'm I'm very excited to see where things might go. Andrew and it Stanton also- it seems to be a very talented sort of filmmaker. I I haven't seen the John Carter film. Did you? I did, and it's underrated. I'm not going to, you know, call it a masterpiece or anything like that. But I think a lot of critics were a little too eager to jump on that one just because of the uh, amount of money that it cost and the financial disaster that it was for Disney. It's a good movie. It, uh, it bites off a little more than it can chew at times, but it's a solid space adventure of sorts. And uh, I know that George Lucas, when he was making Star Wars, was very inspired by the old John Carter stories. And uh, conversely, now we have a John Carter movie that feels like it owes a great debt to Star Wars. So it's sort of come full circle in a number of ways. But yeah, I quite liked it. Right. As you already pointed out, it seems that John Carter was, uh, you know, not just a movie that came out of Hollywood. It, it had an original story based on a novel, and that novel was also some of the inspiration for Star Wars stories. So it's not like they could altogether create an original story with the John Carter uh, um, story. So Andrew had to somewhat be faithful to the material while also trying to make the, his adaptation to the theater. And I think that that makes sometimes a more difficult challenge for a relatively uh, inexperienced director. Even a greatly successful one like Andrew had uh, all the potential creativity in the world when he was going to his canvas for Finding Nemo because it was not based on another story. The, though they borrowed a lot of ideas from many other stories like, um, you know, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and, and other things, they might have a little motif here and there. It was pretty much an original story and with a lot of rich original characters, which give them all the opportunities in the world to sound very creative with these very opinionated characters that wear their personalities on their sleeves. So finding Dory, uh, I'm really excited about it because I think that this is one of the more suitable sequels for a Pixar film. I don't think that some of the other films deserve a follow-up if there are some that are in the making. For instance, I don't believe at this time there's anything for a bug's life and I don't think it needs a sequel. And I don't think that there should be a sequel for brave or Ratatouille. Um, that would seem out of place. It seems right now that we're uh, many people in the general going movie-going audience are concerned that Hollywood is putting out too many sequels. And as far as sequels are concerned, I'm going to defend this one. I think that this one is one that makes better sense. It's uh, Finding Nemo was a really fun story for kids and families, parents, and everybody. It was just m- so much more accessible it was very entertaining, 
And Dory was one of the best additions to animated films in uh, you know history in the, in the last ten years, twenty years, whatever. Uh, she was just a phenomenal character. My only issue with this Clark is that if there is anything that can be its downfall, it would be that Dory is a side character that was there for a lot of comic relief, and as we saw with the Cars two film. Right. The character of Mater beca- took the center stage, became the protagonist, and much like Dory, he really excelled in the original Cars movie. And so you take this uh, comical relief character, give him the limelight, and what does that do to your movie? It doesn't necessarily spell disaster, but it seemed like it didn't pay off. And generally, the audience has very mixed feelings about it. And ultimately, anyone who especially enjoys Cars 2 acknowledges the, the, the fun and the amusement of the film that it has to offer for very young audiences. Because, let's face it, you know, Mater didn't have the sort of appeal to the general audience, the adult audience, uh, that the original Cars 1 did. Uh, what do you think about this possibility? Well, I, I think it's too early to say, honestly. And I, I know that she said in her announcement it's got a lot more Dory, but that's could it's very a- well be a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing, given that you know <laughs> she's the one announcing it. And no, oh, there's a lot more Dory in it. And this, you know, I, I I think it's too early before we've seen anything of the script, any teaser trailers, any anything. Uh, to start jumping to conclusions about what its strengths and weaknesses might be. For now, I think I'll leave it at, uh, I'm looking forward to it. And as long as the original team is in place, I have a fair amount of confidence that they'll deliver something worthwhile. Yes, I have a lot of faith in Andrew Stanton. And I think that because this brings some of the quintessential creative filmmakers of Pixar back into the fold for a Pixar film after Brave, that that's a very good thing. Um, some of their best talent, again, was Andrew Stanton and the kind of people that Andrew Stanton worked with. He surrounded himself with very extraordinary filmmakers during his career at Pixar earlier on. So that guy ha- can channel a little bit more of his relationship with people like John Lasseter, who is the chief creative officer over Disney studio films and Pixar studio films. And I think that that bodes very well. The other thing too is is that let's not forget that this that, you know this doesn't mean that Dory is the protagonist that is trying to go find Nemo per se. She is um, supposedly the one that needs rescuing. So I'm more interested to find out what this means for the story with Marlin and Nemo himself because now Nemo presumably is an older clownfish and he along with maybe Marlin maybe not would be trying to find Dory and rescue her. So uh, the tables have turned at least uh, halfway around. And I think that that provides some very good potential character development for Marlin, who is one of the more extraordinary characters in all Pixar films right now. Uh, I know that he isn't extremely popular, but I think he is one of the more um, remarkable, deeper, has more uh, gravity to it. So I would like to see what they can do with him if he can team up with his son, Nemo. They had hardly any time together in the Nemo, the first film. So 
one of the great pieces of voice work in the Pixar canon too, Albert Brooks' turn as Marlon, as the just kind of fretful, worrywart father. Uh, he's perfect for that role. And uh, another example of Pixar going for somebody who's well-suited to the part over going for the biggest star available, which is something I've always admired about them. Mm. Well, this now kind of uh, segues into our main topic for today. We're 30, we're 30 ish minutes into our episode. And uh, it's a good time that we go ahead and get into that main topic of discussion. We'll spend the rest of the episode talking about this. Um, and this is something that I have in the back of my mind every day of the year. I think about this continuously. I grew up with Pixar movies. And Clark, I know that some of our earliest conversations were about Pixar movies when we were teenagers. And it seems like they're very dear to our hearts. We cared not just about the movies, we also care about the studio, their talents. We follow the careers of some of their filmmakers. We watch the behind-the-scenes stuff. We, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're not ashamed to admit that we, de- we deeply care about their creative juices over there. I actually visited Pixar Animation Studios headquarters in California a little over a year ago, and I just had a blast, even though they didn't let me in. Uh, And, you know, I think that they're just, I think the world of them and what they have accomplished for the Incredibles, even Ratatouille, which had a rough production uh, to some extent, uh, even Cars, you know, but then the ones that really stand out to me, you know, I, I love the Toy Story films. And I think that everybody can connect with that. But then when we look at the whole of what cartoon animated films have for us, um, since the mid '90s, or even as the early '80s, I mean, it just seems like cartoon movies have been played with bad film productions, uh, poor quality values, poor storytelling, bad acting, misdirection of some sort. There's been a lot of good ones, yeah, but we were dependent on Pixar to give us extraordinary stories, while nobody else was. And then Brave happened. Cars 2 happened. And a lot of people weren't crazy about Wally or Ratatouille, although they had a lot of critical acclaim, and I think they're great. But they're definitely different, right? Up is different from the, the other normative types. It seems like Toy Story 3 is extremely popular with critics and moviegoers in general, but it's something of a popcorn film, too. So this is the backdrop for my concern about the present and the future of Pixar and Disney. And what are they up to? Where are they going with this? Are we, do we, should we, as the audience, be wary of what they're doing with films like, uh, you know, Disney's Tangled and where they, in, you know, many of these other uh, CG animated films and cartoon animated films that just, they're so pathetic. I don't even remember them. I don't remember them by name. I can picture some of them in my mind's eye, but I don't remember what they were. And I, and I never care to return to them. But that seems to be the majority of the Disney films in the last 10 years. And Pixar, now bought and owned by Disney, it, it's created a lot of concern for a lot of the moviegoers. A lot of the more uh, interested moviegoers. Parents. That are thinking about what their children are watching. And they and you know, we're happy with Tangled. We're ultimately happy with 
an extraordinarily, uh, I would call it a surprising movie like Wreck-It Ralph, which just totally floored me. I had no idea that that was coming. Um, I'd love to know what you think about that, too. We'll have to talk about that, too, while we're in the middle of this discussion, Clark. But I want yeah. you to give more of your opinion about this than I. So I'm now that we've introduced this topic, now that we've raised this subject, I'm going to just ask questions, and I'm going to let you have fun with this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so now the rest of the show depends on you. Oh dear! I'm gonna take. And this is where it stinks. (laughs) Yes, here you could have the pilot controls, Clark. I'm gonna just sit here and play with my iPad. (laughs) Um. Well, well, okay. Okay. So, what do you have to say to all that? Okay. Well, I I have to say, like you, I have a great deal of admiration for Pixar. Uh, And watching the studio evolve since their inception has been well, not since their inception, but since their first feature, at least. Uh, with Toy Story has been a, a remarkable thing. And really, the Toy Story franchise itself seems to uh, kind of chart the journey of the Pixar series fairly well. Uh, you know, with the first film being this great technical achievement, and it's, it's a lot of fun, but primarily noteworthy for what it did for the world of animation. And then the second one comes along, and there's an emotional reson- resonance there that wasn't in the first one and demonstrates Pixar moving into uh, deeper, more mature storytelling as they're growing. And then by the time the third one arrives, it's sort of a, a little bit of everything that they've achieved over the course of their history. Uh, everything from that more emotionally driven storytelling to uh, satire, to slapstick comedy, to it's just a, a little bit of everything and it works tremendously well. Mm. But uh, yeah, I think to a certain point, Pixar was more or less an unstoppable force. And for a while there, uh, in the early years, it seemed as if nearly every movie they made was an improvement upon the previous thing they had made. Uh, they were always seeking new ways to top themselves, both on technical levels and in storytelling ways. And uh, to me, I know you said that it's it feels like sort of a different period for you, but that stretch uh where they made Finding Nemo and The Incredibles and Ratatouille and Wally and Up to me that's the most exciting portion of Pixar's history because that seems to be the area uh when they're really saying you know we're we going do, to own- we can do anything we want and we yes. can make it work and right. you know every one of those movies was a big risk and everyone made a fortune at the box office and uh, did tremendously well with audiences and critics, and uh, it's a remarkable run. And though it was disappointing that they sort of fell off with Brave and Cars 2, uh, I suppose it was inevitable at some point that they would. I mean, no studio can sustain a hot streak for that length of time. Um, right. At least not one that I've encountered. So what they've achieved is, you know, still something to celebrate and one hopes that they can eventually regain that momentum. Right. Some of the more recent successes like Up and Wally were in production long before they were taken over officially by Disney Studios. Right. So there's good reason to believe that those films had a secure future because they were 100% under the control of Pixar. In more recent times, like Cars 2 though i don't know the specifics the general con- um the 
what the theater going public believes is whether or not this is true and it should be disputed is whether or not cars Two represents the first film that was completely led by Disney studios telling Pixar what to do. And a lot of people feel that cars Two was made purely out of uh, Disney's decision that they should capitalize on the su- success of the original cars film and how they could market it and sell a lot of Cars toys. So Cars 2 came to be because it was easy to market and because of the success of the first one with very uh, accessible characters for little boys and girls, especially boys, they could sell a lot of merchandise. So the theater-going you know, group says, yes, Cars 2 looks like it was just a part of the machine, an example of Disney just uh, banking on the numbers and telling Pixar what to do in order to give them that kind of film that they could make a lot of money on. That's an interesting theory, but I don't know that I completely buy it, in part because if there's one person that you associate with Pixar more than any other, who would that be? John Lasseter. Absolutely. And as the the director of that film, or the co-director, rather, and as the person who co-wrote the story, uh, and as the person who directed the original Cars, there's so much of him and his voice in that film. I, I, I don't just that- said it. You said exactly what's on my mind, and that has been my impression of that film all along. When I first saw that film, I recognized that it didn't excel the same way that other Pixar films excelled. Mm-hmm. But when I walked out of the theater, I already had written in my notes. This film best represents the creativity of John Lasseter. At least that was my take on it. Yeah, that it felt uh, like it was very true to him, his voice, and his appreciation for amusement and entertainment, and his style of character development and humor. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And uh, it didn't necessarily work for me as well as I'm sure it did for him. But uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it did feel very much like a John Lasseter movie, even as it also felt like the sort of film that uh, a studio like DreamWorks would be making. Um, and interestingly, we've talked to, uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier something about Disney sort of growing more successful in recent times. DreamWorks is another studio that uh, Has seems to be getting more ambitious with uh, films like uh, How to Train Your Dragon, as far as I'm concerned, is a film worthy of Pixar's standard. Uh, I, I would have to agree with you, especially after Brave. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe the bar has been lowered a bit, but, <laughs> but they, they've been trying to do more with at least some of their recent efforts. So it's, uh, they're not as easily dismissed as they were when they were making Shark Tale and Shrek 3 and so on. Right. And Shark, uh, Shrek 4 and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, you know, Pixar, how can we criticize, criticize them? Pixar has been making Toy Story 16. So <laughs> that's true. Well, then let's get down to the meat and potatoes. Clark, oh, what has been your impression, if we can be very specific about a question now, uh, what has been your impression of Disney and Pixar's relationship and watching them make films together as you have grown up and beyond? Like, do you think that this is an unholy marriage or is this actually been something that benefits both studios to work so closely together? Now with John John Lasseter at the helm of both, I mean, is this a positive 
venture still? Do we have a do we have a gauge on this? Is there any sort of consensus? Do you think as of yet? Well, it can be difficult to discern unless you're somebody who works at the studio and is able to see uh, what's happening there on a daily basis exactly how much influence Disney's executives have over Pixar and vice versa. I know that John Lasseter is sort of somebody that Disney's turned to and asked him, look, guide us in the direction we need to go. We trust your judgment. And certainly I think his presence has been a positive influence on Disney and the work that they've been doing in recent years. Uh, now, whether Pixar's decline has to do with the sort of creative decline that would have inevitably happened at some point when all the inspiration is just exhausted or whether it actually has something specifically to do with Disney, I think is a little difficult to say. Um, and maybe still too early to say one that intrigues me and that I think we'll learn a lot from is Monsters University. You're which right. Is coming up soon. And I, I think that's an instance where I, I think certainly um, uh, it, there's enough material in that franchise to merit another installment, and I think if Pixar is working at the level of creativity they were when they re- made the original Monsters, Inc., we could be looking at something quite special. But uh, I, if it is a sequel that's more in line with what was done with Cars 2, then I think that might be an indication that Disney's influence to play things a little safer, to play things a little more conventionally, conventionally might be having a negative effect on Pixar. So uh, I think that's going to be a bit of a litmus test for this relationship. There you go. That that says actually a lot because Monsters Incorporated seemed like it introduced a, a world of characters that were rather superficial and they wouldn't have much depth to them. They were going to be quintessentially 2D characters, so to speak. And... What surprised everybody was that it introduced very soulful, emotional, complex characters, and I think it brought a tear to a lot of audiences' eyes. Everybody was impressed by what that film could do with monsters and a little kid. And I think that everybody was on the edge of their seat when the film ends and Soli is looking out to the little girl and the credits roll, kids were screaming for a sequel right then and there. <laughs> you know, I, I know I was one of them. I mean, I, I was at least a kid. There was at least one kid that was screaming for a sequel. But the, so the thing is, is now we're getting not a sequel, we're getting a prequel. What does this mean? And it seems to me that we cannot add meaning to it until we see the film. But I'm wary of what they're doing with this film because the trailers have suggested that Pixar is experimenting with different genres. After Cars, I think, uh, you know, Cars 2 kind of brought this in. Cars 2 tried to say, you know what, we have done a lot with experimental storylines where we've introduced different kinds of worlds and inanimate objects as characters. Let's explore different genres now. And with Cars 2, they just had a straight-up comedy that, yeah, had a little bit of a, a spy motif and a little bit of a adventure story at the same time. But it was less of an adventure like the Toy Story films and the Incredible film and the Bugs Life film. And it was more of a comedy. And then Brave follows this up 
with more of an adventure, but it's a different sort of adventure, right? This one is almost a a twist on the classic Disney princess story that she is a disgruntled princess, that things don't go right for her, that it's a dark story in a dark woods and magic is mostly has, has mostly negative effects. It's not pretty and prim and exciting and bright and cheerful, like a tangled movie or other Disney princess movies with magic uh, the Brave movie tried to, uh, you know, give you a dark twist on the Disney princess, um, like convention. So they were experimenting with the genre convention there. And here I'm thinking that Monsters in University means that they are trying to t- do a twist on the traditional comedy that takes place for a couple of guys in college. This is a subgenre to comedy. This is the guys just having a wild, chaotic um, experience, some pandemonium over in college and over their experiences in college. And this could be more accessible to um, adults that went to college and guys in college now, but this is also a unique genre, subgenre that. Pixar has not experimented with before. This isn't like the adventure stories of Finding Nemo, going to find somebody that's missing. Yeah. And Wally trying to bring humanity back to Earth. But in in fairness, I mean, they have done more explicit genre stuff in the past. Uh, Think back to A Bug's Life, for instance, uh, essentially being a remake of The Magnificent Seven which was itself uh, a remake of Seven Samurai and, uh, you know, the band of heroes teaming up to fight this greater evil in that sort of classic movie tradition. And then you have The Incredibles, which is fundamentally a superhero movie, albeit one that sort of fuses the superhero movie with the family drama. Uh, and then you go to Toy Story 3, uh, which is largely, in its very clever way, a, a prison movie in the vein of The Great Escape. Um, I, I think it's something that they've been interested in for a long time, and I don't think it's necessarily uh, a positive or negative thing. It's just how it's used and what they do with it. Right. And, mm. you know, it, it's really in the execution because... It is. In, in Monsters University, if somebody were to tell me, okay, what this movie is, it's basically Pixar's version of Animal House, but with monsters, you know? <laughs> um. <laughs> I'd be intrigued, and I, you know, uh, it's hard to say whether or not that's a good or bad idea until you see what they're doing with it. I wouldn't have necessarily thought that making Toy Story three a variation on The Great Escape would be the wisest plan in the world, but it certainly worked. And uh, well, right now, you know, if we want to, I mean, it's not like we can overanalyze this because there, he hasn't been altogether tested. The director from Monsters University is Dan Scanyon. And he's done some smaller work uh, over at Pixar. He's done some of their shorter films. They do a lot of short films. And Dan has been at the helm of some of those. Um, He hasn't been an altogether experienced sort of director. So this is his first feature film. But it's saying a lot that they're trusting him with Monsters University. And it was also saying a lot when they had the original director on Monsters Incorporated. I don't think he had all that much experience as the director at the helm either. Uh, writers for Monsters University 
Uh, the two that are featured as credited on um, IMDb, Pete Doctor, he's got a good reputation, and of course, uh, Andrew Stanton, who is directing, you know, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, and probably will eventually find Marlin. So, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a good sign. I I'm not saying that we can that we can judge the film until it's out, but. There, there is obviously this concern that still stands based on our experience with films like Brave. And I think that this is also contrasted with what Disney is up to. Because Disney came out with Wreck-It Ralph, which was a really su- good surprise. So maybe now would be the time to contrast um, Disney um, CG animation films, which are, again led by creative mastermind John Lasseter at the top of Disney and, you know, the likes of Brave and maybe what this means for Pixar's future. Maybe Pixar gets completely absorbed by Disney and they just uh, they just take their two studios and meld them together and Pixar, its name goes by the wayside and Disney just, you know, takes credit for all these people and they they just merge their animation departments. Do you think that that could happen? Do you think that that's likely to happen? I think that there's a lot of people who would rather see Pixar live on th- as an um, animation studio still than Disney. Okay. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, and I think it has a lot to do with the heritage of the two studios. Yes, uh, with the heritage of the Pixar studio, of course, with the classic films that they've made and not wanting to dilute that too much, but I think more importantly – uh, the heritage of the Disney studio and the work that they've put out, because even though they've struggled a lot in recent years, uh, let us not forget about the, the many, many classic animated features that Disney created back in the day, uh, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and then the Disney renaissance they had from the late 80s through the mid to late 1990s, and uh, some really exceptional films came out of that era. Uh, so Disney, you know, I, I don't think should be necessarily regarded as a lesser force in the world of animation, so much as one which has temporarily fallen by the wayside. But I think a a return to form is almost inevitability for Disney at some point, given their history. Mm, Right. And this is why I love having you on here, Clark. (laughs) You're you're so good at remembering all the facts and details that, you know, yes, I remember late at night when I'm about to go to sleep, but you seem to have much better recall than I do. But you're right. (laughs) And uh, there's ups and downs for all these studios. I mean, by all means, I'm not putting too much stock in Warner Brothers for all of their live-action films. I realize that they produce a lot of them, a lot more than, say, Pixar produces cartoon and animated films in a given year. Mm -hmm. But for what it's worth, I'm always giving their next movie a try. I will, you know, wait to see what it's up to before I want to judge it. You know, at least see a trailer, you know, find a review somewhere about that latest live action movie from Warner Brothers before I condemn it or before I go see it. Well, and, and, you know, you know, it's it's always intrigued me that we judge animated movies by the studio they come from as opposed to the individual filmmakers that make them in most cases. You know, most of the time we talk about, say, uh, the films of Clint Eastwood or the movies of Steven Spielberg, or the movies of George Lucas, and we judge them and their body of work as individual filmmakers, uh, rather than lumping their work into, you know, the world of Paramount, or the world of Fox, or Warner Brothers, and so on. 
uh, because that would just be ridiculous given the diversity of content that comes from those studios. But with animated features, we tend to talk about a movie not as a uh, Pete Doctor film or a John Lasseter film so much as a Pixar film or a Disney film. That's the lens we view it through. And that's very intriguing to me, and I think it says something about the importance of an animation studio as opposed to a live-action studio forming its own identity and uh, having a sense of what it is regardless of who's at the helm. Right. Well, so many of these animated movies have the same people behind them uh, year in and year out. Right. A a, uh, animated studio works with its uh, creative team for you know the majority of all this work at one particular building, all the people right. on staff are the masterminds behind you know four to you know even ten movies that are going on simultaneously, and so they just work in house and they keep them on, keep them on the down low, very secretive until they're ready to market them. Um, and that's that's probably one reason. That we, you know, we uh, give them more credence as far as a studio and, you know, like sure. what what the general public consensus is of these movies um, based coming out of the animated stock versus the live action stock. But yeah. I agree with you. You're right. We should be considering why do we th- treat the live action film so much differently than the animated ones. And I think there's a lot more sensitivity from the, again, the general movie going public towards family films, children's films, entertainment, because we're wary about, you know, the formative years of childhood. I mean, for no other reason, I remember that the movies that meant a lot to me growing up weren't live-action movies unless they were targeting kids. The films that meant a lot to me were the ones that were targeting me as a kid. So I I was drawn to the most extraordinary ones. I cared about those that were the most entertaining, that were the most heartfelt, that had the most powerful messages. You know, those were the ones that made a profound difference to me. And I think that parents want that same experience for their children. So they're much more wary about what's going on with the studios that are producing content for their kids because they want their children to have an awesome childhood like they did with awesome movies that profoundly affected them even when the, in, the, in the seemingly, you know, subtle things in life. Yeah. You know? Those movies well, you carry with you your whole life and you care about. I mean, I identify with Toy Story and sure. a lot of my friends do. Well, and going back to something you sort of hinted at earlier, I don't want to seem dismissive of anyone's point of view out there, but I really don't think there's much to be concerned about uh, from a parental or content perspective when it comes to Disney being involved in what Pixar does. I know Disney in some circles, uh, still has a bit of a stigma attached to it because of all the controversy that went on with people boycotting Disney back in the 1990s. But if you look back at what they actually produced, look back at the Disney films from that era in which they were so, quote-unquote, controversial, uh, there's nothing there that's any more objectionable than anything Pixar has put out. They they hold up quite well as charming, family-oriented films, and... Uh, I would be a lot more concerned from an artistic and a parental perspective, I suppose, if a studio like DreamWorks were getting involved, uh, where they tend to emphasize sort of cheap, crass humor uh, a lot more enthusiastically. But even there, I mean, I, I don't think it's a huge issue of concern, uh, at least from my perspective. 
Mm, okay. Well, hey, let's uh, let's bring this back to uh, to a specific a couple of specific films then. Okay. What, what do you, Clark, make of Disney's CG animated work like Tangled and Wreck-It Ralph that are wildly successful? And the reason I bring this up, I guess, with a little bit more thought, is that it almost feels like Disney is competing with Pixar, yet they have the same guys behind their films, and yet they scratch each other's backs sometimes, and sometimes they're actually competing against each other, and then Wreck-It Ralph gets a lot of acclaim tangled gets a lot of acclaim but these are these are successes for disney while pixar is suffering failures like cars 2 and you know brave so what do you think of this of this situation some people call it a mess some think that disney is playing favorites with themselves and not treating pixar fairly or some people have gone so far as to say that if they didn't know better, Brave was a Disney film that was given Pixar accreditation because, well, Disney didn't want to take credit for it. And then Wreck-It Ralph felt more like a Pixar film that was given Disney credit. What do you think of this? Well, just as I, I think it's too early to write off Pixar as a creative force, I also think it's too early to proclaim Disney to be the next Pixar with films like Tangled and Wreck-It Ralph. And, you know, I don't want to get into a, a debate with you over this, but I have to say that uh, Wreck-It Ralph, to me, isn't the next great animated feature that some people have claimed it is. It's a good movie, and it's a fun movie, but I think that most of its pleasures are surface-level pleasures, and that it's not going to hold up to scrutiny over the years to the degree that many of Pixar's best films have. Uh, Pixar's greatest movies... You can go back and watch them time and time again and find new things and find new depths and find new plot intricacies and throw away sight gags and one-liners that finally, you know, stick with you. Wreck-It Ralph is a movie that I think starts to fall apart a little bit more under closer scrutiny. Some of the mistakes that it makes, some of the poor narrative choices that it makes, some of the ways in which it doesn't really explore uh, the full potential of its premise to the degree that it could. It's a good movie. But to me, it it feels definitely more like Disney mimicking Pixar than really making a legitimate Pixar movie. Meanwhile, I think that Brave is still more of a Pixar film than people say it is, because even though, yes, it is a princess movie and people automatically associate princesses with Disney and so on, it's also a movie which narratively goes off in its own direction uh, and takes some some paths that Disney films don't traditionally take. I'm not saying that it works or that it's a really good movie. I'm not a big fan of Brave. But it it still, I think, is uh, an example of Pixar's willingness to experiment with formula and to try new things. It's just that those things didn't work out particularly well this time around. Mm. And that could go back to the troubled production process that Brave went through, changing directors midway through its production right. process and things like that. I mean, that's the sort of thing that can really damage a movie, and it could very well be to blame. So mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I still think it's too soon to proclaim that uh, one franchise has taken the place of the other just yet. Yeah, and I ever agree with you on something you mentioned a moment ago that in some ways 
The reason that Wreck-It Ralph stands out as much as it does is not so much that it is extraordinary on its own two feet, but that it does hearken to qualities that we appreciate in some of the better Pixar films. And it doesn't mean that it's equaling Pixar quality, but that we can see how Pixar has had a positive influence on Disney's CG animated movies. That is very important. I think that's a great observation. Well, um, and, I yeah. mean, it, it, and I guess we didn't really touch on Tangled all that much, but I have to say, I still think Tangled is the best thing Disney has done in the past decade. Uh, it's very much true to their traditional formula in a lot of ways, but it's that formula at its very best. And I think mm. is a great demonstration of what Disney does well and what they can be if they, you know, focus on staying true to themselves. Hmm. Interesting. And, th- and that film was also kind of unique in that it was a woman centered around a princess, a girl, a girl that was a princess. And yes, it's very Disney-like and it was a Disney project and it was one of the first films with John Lasseter behind the scenes at Disney. And so it seemed to benefit from him as well because I don't, I can't say that there's any particular earmark that reminds me of Lasseter, but I just know from the movies that were CG animated films at Disney that led up to Tangled that they, they don't feel like they had any sort of leadership from the creative work, uh, minds behind Pixar now, now like, th- like this film had. Yeah. One thing that I do wish, and this is just sort of a personal fantasy of mine, and I know that the business climate of today's movie-going public won't permit this, but what I really, truly wish is that Pixar would remain focused on making CG animated films and that Disney would remain focused on making traditionally hand-drawn animated films. There are so few of them nowadays, and Disney does them so well most of the time when they do them. Um Princess and the Frog was sort of an attempt to return to that, and it, it was fine. I mean, it was a beautiful-looking movie. Uh, the story was adequate, let's say. But uh, if they could harness the storytelling of something like mm. Tangled in their more traditional 2D animated format, I think that would be a wonderful thing, and I would love to see that style of animation make a comeback because as you know, technologically advanced and nifty as some of the other forms of animation are, whether it's the motion capture or, you know, the more traditional CG animation. Uh, there's something to be said for the artistic value of hand-drawn animation, and I think that's being lost in the modern era. Yeah, you know what this brings to mind is Paper Man, which was the short film that showed, what was it, before Wreck-It Ralph? Yes. Yes, well, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. This is an example where Pixar, you know, did a short film like in the vein of you know, sorry, uh, Disney did a short film in the vein of Pixar, but it was all, uh, you know, it looked like it was 2D animation, although a lot of it was uh, 3D, uh, yeah. you know, improvised to look 2D. But it demonstrates how good Disney is at that style of animation. And it really excelled for being a short film. I'm surprised by what it was able to accomplish personally. I think it was a pretty decent job on a short film and again reminiscent of Pixar but it seemed like it was Disney doing what they're best at which was the the 2D stuff and in an artistic way like you said. Hmm. Yeah. Well and it it was interesting too that with that 
and with the uh, short film that showed before Brave, was it called La Luna, I believe it was? Yes. Uh, both of those, to me, are better examples of what those studios are capable of and the sort of thing they should be doing uh, than the actual features they accompanied. But, um, oh, well. Mm. Well, Clark, this has been a very fun discussion about this particular topic, and we probably should follow it up again when movies like this summer's Monsters University and Disney's Planes come out, because I think that this year these two movies are going to be a better tell and kind of give us a better impression of what exactly is going on. You know, films like Finding Dory don't come out until 2013. 15 so yeah we're, we're gonna have to wait for that one but and I, I, I have to say i don't like to judge movies before i've seen them but i will say that if planes turns out to be anything other than thoroughly mediocre i will be more than a little surprised <laughs> i i agree i very much agree but like you said i'm, I'm gonna hold my breath i'm yeah. gonna wait yeah well clark because we just don't have you on here enough I want to talk about one other thing before we you got to go, and that is, what are some of the movies that you're looking forward to for 2013? I know I have a long list, but I've tried to boil them down to, uh, you know, the three that are on my mind probably the most right now. Okay. And I think you have done a fine job as well. So I'm very curious about some of your picks because I'm less familiar with them. Um, so I wanted to take some turns here and just run through them quickly. Okay. As general, general moviegoers, what is it that you would say to a friend that might talk them into going to see this movie with you and going out on, out on a limb for this movie before we have any official reviews about them or uh, a consensus from the critics or the general public? Okay. So, so go ahead and tell me about this first one you've got here. Uh, the first one I've picked is uh, probably the most obscure movie on on my list, uh, To the Wonder, which is the latest film from director Terrence Malick. Uh, I know very little about this movie. Uh, what I do know is that Malick's previous feature, The Tree of Life, was my favorite film by a pretty wide margin of 2011. A, a really beautiful movie, a thought-provoking movie, and one which I've returned to on multiple occasions. Uh, at the very least, I'm certain that To the Wonder is going to be a feast for the eyes, as Malick's cinematography is always remarkable. But uh, generally, his films are, are very thought-provoking on a philosophical level as well. Um, not that that's the greatest sell in the world for the average moviegoer, <laughs> but it's something that I'm very much looking forward to. And uh, an interesting cast, too. Ben Affleck is in there, Javier Bardem, uh, Rachel McAdams, some talented people, and uh, I'm very eager to see what he's done next, especially considering that I've heard it's sort of continuing to explore some of the spiritual themes he began in The Tree of Life. Mm. Okay, I'm sold. <laughs> I'll go see this movie with you, uh, okay. because I was a big fan of Tree of Life, although I, I have mixed feelings about it. I still felt very strongly about my mixed feelings, so <laughs> okay. that was a film that was worth seeing. Fair and enough. I've recommended it to a fair number of people. It actually introduced me to Terrence Malick. And then I talked to all these other people and they're like, dude, you didn't know about Terrence Malick. He's like God's gift to filmmaking. How could you <laughs> miss this? So 
Yes, I'm enthused. You just told me it's director Terrence Malick, writer Terrence Malick, and I'm like, okay, sold. I'm there. I'm getting a ticket for this. I'll be paying attention. Well, first in my lineup of three films that I'm looking forward to is Oblivion, starring Tom Cruise, directed by Joseph Kaczynski. And it's a story, a sci-fi story epic about a veteran assigned to extract Earth's remaining resources, and he begins to question what he knows about his mission and, you know, what's going on around him for humanity. They've all left Earth. Uh, Apparently some alien race had a war with humanity, so... Um, you know, mankind won, but they had to leave the planet. Now, this guy is just uh, doing a few little operations to clean up the mess behind the war. And while he's there trying to do his day-to-day operations, this character Tom Cruise plays, uh, realized that there is something of a, a conspiracy that is lingering, and there's dark secrets that several people in the higher-ups uh, of running the operation for mankind have going on, and Morgan Freeman stars in it. And then it introduces several people that I'm, uh, I think are lesser known, but I still think have a lot to offer. And the director I'm uh, pleasantly pleased with, Joseph Kaczynski. I liked his work for Tron Legacy. And I've, based on interviews of what he has to say about Oblivion, it sounds like it could be a real humdinger. And it's coming out soon. So it's the film I'm looking forward to the most at the present. So, uh, and I'm, I don't get excited about Tom Cruise movies. So it's saying a lot because I'm putting my stock in Joseph Kaczynski and uh, I hope that he has a bright future in his film career after the likes that he has done with Tron making it, you know, even though you may have your, uh, your misgivings about that film, I think he did a much better job with it than the original Tron making it accessible to a wider audience. I know the original one has its fans and I'm not dissing that work. I'm just saying, I I like Joseph Kaczynski more than I like the original director of, say, the original Tron. So I, I'm more interested in his work in general and what his future has in store. Well, I, I think it's a case where the original Tron has all the good ideas. Uh, the sequel has all the good everything else, but not really so many good ideas. And I think <laughs> that, that, that's where it sort of the contrast is, but yeah, I'm looking forward to Oblivion too. It looks like an interesting movie. And though I wouldn't consider myself a Tom Cruise fan necessarily either, I have to say he, he very rarely turns in a film that I've felt was just a complete waste of time. He has a pretty solid track record with delivering entertainment. And uh, yeah, I, I'm curious to see what Oblivion has to offer. Mm, there you go. It's coming from the critic and the guy sitting in the audience. So, <laughs> all right. So Clark, tell me another one. Okay, uh, this one, uh, more of a popcorn movie, much more of a popcorn movie, actually. Um, and one I'm very curious about, again, because of the director, uh, The Lone Ranger, which is being directed by Gore Verbinski. Uh, Gore Verbinski, to me, is one of the most interesting big mainstream filmmakers out there today because he always manages to stuff so many elements of strangeness and creativity and weirdness into the corners of his uh, big mainstream movies. The Pirates of the Caribbean films, the first three uh, he directed, and to me those movies get increasingly interesting as they progress from one to three because he gets more and more excited about experimenting within the Pirates framework that he's established until uh, by the time the third film arrives, it's just 
one movie homage and experimental scene and nifty idea after another. And uh, Rango, I think, is one of the strongest animated films of recent years, something that doesn't feel like anything from Disney or Pixar, DreamWorks or any of the others, but is a wholly unique creation on its own terms and uh, really just a wonderful experience. So I, I don't know. I found myself intrigued to a greater degree than a lot of people, I guess, by everything he's put out over the past decade or so. Also made a wonderful little movie with Nicolas Cage called The Weatherman. Hmm. And I'm curious to see what he does with this. The premise is interesting, too, uh, with Tonto essentially being the central character and feeling more or less that the Lone Ranger is his sidekick, which is uh, sort of a fun <laughs> idea. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm up for this and uh, looking forward to seeing what it has to offer. Right. Uh, two things that echo what you just said. One, uh, when I watched trailers for this f- movie, The Lone Ranger, it occurred to me, uh, who is making this movie? And I thought to myself, this feels like, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean in the West. And it was. It's the same <laughs> director and it's the same lead, John Johnny Depp. So then the other thing that stood out to me was when I see the movie posters, they usually highlight the character of Tonto and played down a little bit the character of the Lone Ranger. So even the pro- on the profile for IMDb, you have uh, the the Lone Ranger off to the right, and part of him is off the picture. And then on the left, you have Tonto on full. You see him full body, head to toe. The guy, and there's nothing missing about him. He's taking the, uh, he's the first thing you see on the poster. <laughs> and Complete the, with a bird on his head. Uh, with a bird on his head. And that just, that just, I don't know. I mean, like, if, um, if J- uh, Jack Sparrow ever had a parrot, I think that that's what he would have done. So, uh, yeah, Gore Verbinski. Okay. I'm, I'm interested. I, I, I will, I'm more interested in the premise of a Western from Gore Verbinski than the likes of the pirate stories, just because I'm not as interested in pirates in general. But that's a personal choice taste. Well, that's another thing, too. We get so few Westerns these days. uh, They're out of fashion, so we're lucky if we get one a year. Uh, So for the sole virtue of being part of that genre, I'm intrigued, too. Mm. Well, there you have it. Okay, that's another good one to see. I'm really intrigued by your next choice. I'd like to hear what you have to say about this one. <laughs> okay, well, this is uh, the second most uh, interesting film to me at the moment because it seems like so few films right now actually intrigue me. Uh, it, I, I see a lot of films, people, so please you know, forgive me for not being excited about just everything that comes down the pike because uh, I get a little overly desensitized to everything that comes down the pike. Remember, I have to review so many of these movies and pity me and pray for me daily. Uh, okay, so there's this movie, Pain and Gain, and I keep seeing trailers for it, and I I just want to laugh at it. I I think it looks absolutely absurd, but I like the colorful, colorful cast. I love it most anything that Mark Wahlberg puts his mind to, and he seems very committed to this movie. At least ways that's how it comes through in the trailer. I have never been interested in a movie that stars Dwayne Johnson, uh, The Rock, and I probably never will be interested in one of his movies again after this, but Pain and Gain from the trailers looks like it's one of the more uh, original sort of action uh, comedies, 
and it just seems like a more peculiar story. It's a, it's a comedy with a lot of twists in it that I, I just don't expect left and right. These guys work out at the gym professionally, and then they get involved in some criminal activity. They want to take down a a a, a leader of uh, criminal organizations. They do, but then that criminal comes after them, and it seems like what you know revenge styled heroism or heroism labeled uh, you know I don't know what to call it revenge in the name of heroism there we go and that's a pretty common theme now but I like it with within the genre of comedy so perhaps it'll work perhaps this pays off like like Ocean's 11 but more ridiculous and <laughs> Well, you know, I've never been particularly interested in Michael Bay movies either, but uh, he is the director on this one, and maybe I'm crazy, but this movie seems to have very little to do with CG and more to do with character development, and I'm more interested in what he does with characters than what he does with CG moving action robots and, you know, jet planes and the like. So I want to see what he can do with Mark Wahlberg and uh, other good character actors that I expect to perform well in this film, at least for a solid piece of amusement. I hope you're right. I really do. Um, my concern, did, did you happen to see the third Transformers film, uh, Dark of the Moon? I did. It was the dark corner of my life. <laughs> okay. So, So my take on that movie, at least, was that uh, the first hour, hour and a half, which mostly focused on the human characters and the sort of setup for the plot, was um, pretty horrible. It I was. Mean, pr- pretty horrible. And then the last hour or so was pretty much Michael Bay making a Michael Bay action movie, and it focused more on the Transformers and CG explosions and whatnot, and it was actually fairly tolerable. Um, so the two things that worked about that movie, which were the non-human characters and the <laughs> reliance on CG action are missing from this. Uh, so uh, I, I really hope Michael Bay is able to pull something off here, but I really don't trust him as, as a storyteller uh, or as a, a creator of compelling characters. So we'll see. Uh, it is a comedy, and you know, as long as the laughs are there, and as long as it's funnier than Bumblebee tickling John Malkovich, then then maybe. But we'll see. I, I hope your instincts are correct on this one, and it does look marginally better than some of his recent work. And perhaps the the slogan for the film on the posters just says it all. Uh, it, just this alone cracks me up. Their American dream is bigger than yours. <laughs> so uh, that should be kind of telling and that's in the vein of Michael Bay films and perhaps that's a bad thing, but maybe with a comedy twist, it could, it could excel. So tell me your last one of your three here. Uh, my last one is one that's actually coming out close to the end of the year and it has one of the more intriguing premises. It's called the monuments men. And the film is about a group of, art historians and museum curators that takes place back during the World War II era. And these uh, historians and museum curators are uniting to recover 
renowned works of art which were stolen by the Nazis and attempting to recover these before Hitler destroys them uh, and is based on a true story. Sounds very intriguing. George Clooney is writing, directing, and starring in the film. I think he has a pretty strong track record as a director and as an actor. He does. Um, and it's he's also assembled a remarkable cast. Matt Damon is in this movie, uh, Kate Blanchett, Bill Murray, John Goodman, uh, Jean Dujardin from The Artist. So uh, a number of interesting people here and uh, an intriguing premise. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see this one uh, being talked about a great deal once the next Oscar season arrives. But, oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Scheduled to release on December 18th. So you know that this film is trying to capitalize on the awards. Yeah, but uh, it really does sound like a very interesting idea, and I'm curious to see what Clooney does with it. Hmm. Okay, I'm adding that to my queue, too. That one looks cool. And hmm, I wonder when we'll get a trailer for it. Maybe during I, I, the summer. I would guess, yeah, summer or early fall, somewhere thereabouts. Okay. Well, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the obvious choice in my collection of three. Um, this one is bound to be one of my personal favorites, and that is The Man of Steel, which is coming out uh, shortly, uh, June 14th. Director Zack Snyder, uh, producer Christopher Nolan. Uh, this film, I know that superheroes are a tired subject and i know that many of them still prove themselves in spite of it and though dc comics movies don't seem to have the best of the superhero track records and they don't have people like joss whedon behind them they still have the likes of christopher nolan participating in their future so we have man of steel and i just think that this this could be the most pleasant surprise of the year. Um, maybe that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm hoping out, holding out on. I'm hoping that this is the most pleasant surprise of the year for me. And I love the, I just love the Superman mythos. I don't know what they're going to do with them, but from the trailers, I'm very interested on what they've got going on. I really like the most recent trailer and I'll put that in the show notes as well. If you're not interested in what they're doing with this film, then you probably just don't care much about Superman. But I think that this film will have a lot more to offer than just more typical Superman heroics. I think it's going into places that you've never seen Superman deal with before in a way in which you've never seen him deal with them before on the big screen. And it has some great actors. It's got... Russell Crowe, Amy Adams, Kevin Costner, and I like the rest of the supporting cast as well. Lawrence Fishburne as yeah. Perry White. Uh, that's saying something for it. Michael Shannon. Okay, this is just, this is exciting. As far as superhero movies are concerned, this is the one I'm most interested in ahead of the likes of, uh, you know, Iron Man 3. And I'm sure that that one will be fun too, but it didn't make my list. Because I think, you know, it's been a long time since we've seen a Superman movie done right. And I'm more interested in seeing some of his material just because it'll be more fresh. Yeah, uh, this is this is also the superhero movie I'm most looking forward to this year and most excited about. 
And uh, I know that it's really a big movie for Warner Brothers and DC and uh, kind of carrying a lot of weight on its shoulders. Mm. Uh, the fate of the Justice League movie, which has been talked about more or less, depends on the success of Man of Steel. Uh, the possibility of future DC characters really getting a chance to shine on the big screen is largely dependent on how this does. And I think it's going to make a big statement about whether Warner Brothers and DC – really can offer a uh, rich universe of its own to rival what Disney and Marvel are doing or whether they're going to be limited to continuing to make Batman movies for the rest of time. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, would you like to see at least uh, the Green Lantern rebooted? Like, I don't know. I don't I mean, want them to go back where they already visit. The yeah, I mean, Green Lantern is such a great character and has such a rich world, and that movie was such a disaster. <laughs> um, man, that that is really disappointing. So I, I, I hope for the sake of because uh, I'm I've always been more of a DC Comics guy than a Marvel guy. Anyway, I just tend to find their stable of characters and their mythology more compelling than what Marvel offers. And, Another great uh, reason why you and I are such good friends. <laughs> and so I, I do, you know, have a little bit of a personal stake in this and, and would really like to see the potential, the endless potential that the world of DC Comics has to offer realized, at least in some way, uh, on the big screen. And this could be the first step in that if Zack Snyder gets mm. it right. I'm right there with you. Well, okay, Clark, this has been... This has been a fabulous episode. I'm so glad that it turned out as well as it did in spite of missing TJ and uh, who we will be welcoming back next week to talk about two other movies we really hoped to get to this week, but we couldn't. And those are G.I. Joe Retaliation and The Host. So you won't want to miss that one. I'm thinking about The Host a lot. I think I'm turning it inside and out because I also read the novel anticipating that I would one day review this movie. Actually, back before uh, we did Movie Bite, when I was uh, doing material for Movieology, I was paying attention to what Melanie, uh, no, not Melanie, but Stephanie Meyer was doing with her career and the Twilight movies, and then the host novel came about, and I found it more interesting than Twilight, so that had something going for it. And G.I. Joe Retaliation, you just cannot move on without talking about that movie. (laughs) It seems to be in the way. So let's talk about this thing and figure out whether or not you want to watch your, you know, watch this or, you know, spare yourself. And and Clark, before we sign off, I just got to say thanks. You've been great. I wish we had you on here more often. You're the bomb. And, uh, you know, we have... We should. We don't point to it enough, but I listen to your podcast, The Sounds and Sights of Cinema, and I enjoy every episode. You talk about movie soundtracks. You relate them to what's going on in theaters or what's current for filmmakers, and I I really enjoy it. I don't get enough. I, I would not get out of movie soundtracks what I do if it weren't for your show. So we are going to share that with people, and I'll probably highlight one of my most recent episodes as well in the show notes. Where else do you want, Clark, people to find you on the Internet? Well, first of all, let me say uh, 
it's incredibly kind of you to say those things, and my head is now so large I may have trouble getting out the door and uh, heading downstairs now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the the podcast is on DVDVerdicts.com. That's where I also write quite a lot of DVD and Blu-ray reviews. And um, if you're in the Griffin-Spalding County area, by some small chance, you'll probably find me on a stage somewhere pretending to be a good actor. So, um yeah, well, we'll have to go down to. there one day and pull out our home camcorders, film it, and put it up on Movie Byte and declare it a Movie then, Byte production and make millions of bucks off of it. And then write a one-star review. <laughs> yes. And then we'll we'll change it for international audiences. Exactly. Exactly. And then it'll make all kinds of more money overseas. Uh, I'll start learning other languages right now. Thank you. Well, let's get on that. That sounds like a great business op- uh, opportunity. Indeed. Well, there you have it, folks. Episode 38 of the Movie Byte podcast. Thank you for listening. And we'll hear, well, hopefully hear from you on the, you know, iTunes. You can, if you want to go over there, you can review this podcast on iTunes. Tell us what you think. We would love to hear some follow up. And if you want to, please read our uh, posts on moviebyte.com. TJ and I cover a lot of movie news there. The things that interest us and like to share our opinions. And if you're feeling really generous, I know it means a lot and it's uh, it takes a lot out of you, but you can go over to facebook.com slash moviebyte.com. And if you can find the energy to move it over your, you know, your mouse a few inches and click on like, it'd mean a lot to us. And uh, you know, you'll, you'll just be our favorite people on planet earth for a whole few minutes. And that'd be great. And that then, is you know, a lot what? of work though. Yes, I know. I'm asking of a lot. So, uh, I'm sorry. I hope you'll find it in your heart. So, thanks again for listening to Movie Bite, and hopefully join us next week for episode 39. Thank you so much for having me, Joe.